Father, we would be remiss if we were not aware of the human tragedies uh, going on in our world. And we do uh, lift up um, the people of Israel. Um, but also, and I think we sometimes forget, um, the, the non-militant Palestinian population um, and the, the difficulties this presents for them, particularly the Palestinian Christians who are uh, an ever-shrinking minority. Um, Lord, we, we do think of uh, our friends uh, there. Um, Lord, we just pray that you will protect them. Uh, Lord, that this situation will be resolved um, quickly um, with a, a minimum of, of violence. Uh, but Lord, we do know that it's a difficult and long-standing situation. Lord, we do pray for ourselves, and uh, we thank you for the, again, the relative safety and security and freedom we experience. Um, often we we are blinded to just how dangerous the rest of the world can be. Um, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together and, and worshiping as a church uh, freely. We we pray um, that that privilege continues and that you will. Um, do um, through us what is necessary to continue that, not just for ourselves, but for all people, that they might have uh, the freedom to worship and and speak and believe freely according to their conscience. Lord, as we turn to your word and we reflect on events from so long ago, help us to remember that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in everything that we see and read and do. May we be encouraged by your Holy Spirit. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to invite you, we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings and chapter 12. We've been talking about the house of David. And as I've mentioned uh, several times, I'm not doing like a, a full-on study of First Kings or anything like that, because um, that would literally take us uh, years. Um, and um, in fact, I went down a rabbit hole yesterday and spent about eight hours studying Ammonite, uh, um, Ammonite successions and kings and all kinds of fun stuff, which you won't hear any of. Um, but uh, but we, we, we're kind of just looking at various aspects of um, the journey of the house of David, the ruling house um, of the kingdom of Judah. And we've talked about David um, a couple times, and we talked a little bit about Solomon um, and the, the temple. And then last week we were going to, we were going to talk about a house divided, but um, we just had, um, I, I guess I was having a lot of fun with Birch and Connie, um, just having a conversation about their work and their ministry, and I didn't want to try to jam it into a tiny space. But we're going to be in 1 Kings and chapter 12, but I just want to give you a little bit of background of the, the moment that is happening here. Uh, Solomon, according to 1 Kings, Solomon, the son of David, rules over a, a really a golden period for the, the Hebrew people, for the people of Israel and Judah. Um, and, and he has this period of, of relative peace, and um, David was a warrior. Solomon is able to just kind of make all kinds of alliances and treaties. He marries the daughter of the king of, of Egypt. He, he joins Israel into all kinds of connections. Um, but toward the end of his life in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 11, we see that um, Solomon kind of embraced the... Uh, the uh, 
uh, what's the best word for it? The liberty of being king and being able to choose whatever woman you like. Um, and uh, winds up with 300 wives and 700 concubines. And I joked around with my wife. I said, that's why building the temple only took him seven years, but building his house took 14. Um, you need a lot of space when you got that many people in your household. Um, but he, um, Solomon, toward the end of his life, he is, he's uh, married all of these women. In First Corinthians, uh, Kings 11, it opens with this statement that his heart began to be drawn away. It was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And he begins to build sanctuaries and holy places and high places and temples and things to his various wives' gods. And the gods that are listed there are uh, historically the gods of um, the Canaanites. Um, and uh, Canaanite is a charged term. Um, it, it can mean a lot of different things. It's, it's got a lot of uh, nuance and things. Uh, I don't want to get into all of the details of that, but um, because of this, in 1 Kings and chapter 11, we're going to be in chapter 12, but because of this, um, we read this, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, uh, this is uh, first, first Kings 11.9, and had commanded him concerning his th- this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded, and therefore the Lord said to Solomon, this has, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenants and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days." But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem um, that I have chosen. And the scriptures actually then in subsequent verses describe the adversary that's going to be the problem. Um, He's a young man by the name of Jeroboam or Jeroboam. Uh, He's a military commander. Uh, He he is quite popular with his troops. Solomon recognizes how dangerous he is. um, And so Solomon wants to get rid of him and Jeroboam uh, runs, uh, he flees. Uh, he tries to escape, and as he's on his way escaping, um, in verse 25, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerodah, the servant of Solomon, um, lifted his hand against the king, and this was the reason he had built his hand against the king, lifted up his hand, because Solomon built Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. And there's a lot going on to that. You just need to know, basically, uh, he's very able, he's very industrious, and Jeroboam, um, basically, Jeroboam is a threat. And so Solomon, uh, he's going to escape, um, but what happens is he runs into a prophet, a guy named Ahijah. Ahijah walks up to him, takes his robe, rips it into 12 pieces, hands 10 pieces to Jeroboam. He says, God is going to tear 10 tribes away from, uh, from Solomon, uh, and he's going to give them to you. And Solomon is furious, so Jeroboam goes to, uh, runs into exile to Egypt. Um, and he lives uh, in Egypt until the end of Solomon's life. Then in chapter 12, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, is declared as king. And Rehoboam is, uh, now it's funny because you get the idea as you read the narrative that Rehoboam is somehow a young man. He's actually 41 years old. Um, so he's not exactly a teenager or anything. He's declared as king 
and he asks his counselors, his, the, the leaders around him, he says, what should I do as king? How should I do this thing? Um, Solomon's left me this tremendous kingdom. How do I manage it? And the old men all say, hey, um, I'm going to call him Rio so everybody can keep track of who he is. He says, Rio, give him a break. Let everybody relax. For 40 years, we've been building stuff. The guy keeps marrying women. We've been expanding this stupid house for forever. We could take a break. It would be great if, if you would just let everybody take a break. Cut their taxes, you know, pay off their student loans, give them a break. And the, the young men, then he goes to his, his young men, his young counselors, and he asks them what they do. And they say, you know what? We should build more. We should do better. We, you should be ambitious. You can exceed the work of your father. So you just go and you tell the people of Israel, hey, not only am I not giving you a break, I'm going to work you harder than your father did. I don't know if you've ever had a boss who thought that that was an ideal strategy. It's never a good practice to say, you know what, as hard as you worked, we want to push harder. You know, we want to drive harder for another 40 years or so. And um, so we're going to pick up verse, uh, verse 16. When all Israel, chapter 12 and verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. That was another great choice. I want to work you hard. They say, no, you're not working as hard. We're going home. So what does he do? He grabs the guy that's in charge of making them work hard, and he says, you go make them work hard. So they're like, we'll work hard. They stone him. Uh, King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Now he realizes the situation. Israel had been in rebellion. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam, we're going to call him Jerry, so we've got Rio and Jerry. Um, Jeroboam had returned. They sent and called him to the assembly and made him king. And there was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Now this is where we're going to we're going to actually land this morning. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin are always together. 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. This thing is of me. How could the division of the covenant people of Israel and Judah be God's will? What could God possibly accomplish by dividing his covenant people into two kingdoms. What, what would this do? How would this help? How would it honor the promise that God gave to uh, David that there, the scepter would never part from him, that he would always rule, a son would always be on the throne? How does this advance God's purposes? 
Well, there's a, a little-known passage that explains this. Um, and um, if you're not careful, you kind of miss it um, when, we, when we look at this. All right? um, I want to take a look back at chapter 11. In the moment, all right, in the moment that Ahijah is talking to Jeroboam, so this is the moment when he tears the garment and he gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and he says to Jeroboam, you're going to rule these tribes. I'm going to keep Judah for myself. Uh, take a look uh, down in verse 31, chapter 11 and verse 31. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord of God Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, and the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Now most people, they focus on that. But look at verse 33. Because he forsake me, they forsook me. They have forsaken me and worshipped the Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Now while the house of David, Solomon, he's worshipping other gods. There's no doubt about that. There's no that's what's going on. And God says to him, because of this, you're going to tear the kingdom. But then when he talks to Jeroboam, he says to Jeroboam, the real reason you're getting these people is because they don't love me. They worship other gods. Now, um, some of you that were in Aperture may remember this. From an archaeological point perspective, do you know the only way we can tell the difference between a Canaanite site and an Israelite site? There's only one way archaeologists decide which one is which. A Canaanite site has pig bones in it. An Israelite site doesn't. That's the only way we can tell the difference. They have the same kind of houses. They have the same kind of structure, same kind of architecture, the same kind of material goods, the same kind of pottery, the same kind of fragments, the same burial rituals, all of that stuff. The difference is Israelites don't eat bacon. Canaanites do. That's the only difference. That's the only way we can tell. The Canaanites and the Israelites on the ground every day in the everyday world were indistinguishable except for the God that they worshipped. So how on earth, if the Israelite God, if the northern tribes are not only, not only are they indiscernible from the Canaanites in every other way, but they're worshipping the gods of the Canaanites, which means they're not keeping kosher, which means they're eating pigs, which means... Are they Israelites or are they Canaanites? This is an interesting question. This northern kingdom, now we're not going to chase the northern kingdom. If you really want to chase the northern kingdom, you can borrow a copy of my dissertation and weed through all of that because I spent a lot of time on the northern kingdom and their particular idiom of Hebrew and how their language works and all that stuff. But the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, um, they are 
so in contact with the Canaanites, so involved in the Canaanite religion, so connected, that calling them Hebrews is almost a misnomer. Now, I want to, geographically, I want to show it to you. So I got a couple of images just so you can see them. Um, this first one is, uh, don't you love my handwriting? Um, this first one is two-dimensional, so you can get the map. All right, so this is the, the blue is the Mediterranean. The green up there is Israel. All right, it's the, the core of the, of the nation of Israel. And the yellow is the core of the nation of Jerusalem. Now, you say, I thought all the maps in my Bible have lines that go all over the place, um, different tribes and all that stuff. Um, these are the highlands. Um, they're the, the mountains. That's where most of the population lived, was up in the mountains uh, of this region. The coastal plain, it's actually called the Plain of Canaan. That's where all the Canaanites lived. And then to um, on the Transjordan, um, the the Ammonites and the Moabites lived over there, um, and uh, and so I have a little 3D picture just so you can see. It makes it look a, makes it look even cooler. Ah, there we go. Um, so this is kind of taken from the south, um, and if you look real carefully, um, you can actually tell. Um, for example, in the Bible, it talks about Moab being a plateau. Well, you guys know what a plateau is, right? It's a high plain. Well, if you look at Moab, you can actually see rising from the Dead Sea these straight cliff walls. Bring the cursor over a little bit right there. All right, those straight. Now, this is a modern picture, by the way. So the Dead Sea has actually been desalinated. It used to be one big piece. Now it's actually separated into two seas. And all those little lines you see are desalination systems. They're they're pulling water out of the Dead Sea and making fresh water with it to irrigate fields. They're actually getting destroying the Dead Sea. Um, but um, you can see Judah and Israel over on the left um, there, and Judah is high country, Israel is high country, and then you got highlands, um, which are, uh, it's called the Shephelah, I know you guys really care about that, um, and then the Canaanite plain and Egypt, and up north is the Sea of Galilee, you can see it way up. Now to give you a perspective of what this is, from the Negev, the wilderness, down on the bottom, the bottom of the Dead Sea, all the way to the Sea of Galilee is 130 miles. It's essentially the distance from Hartford, Connecticut to uh, Concord, New Hampshire. That's the entire country. The entire thing. Um, that's everything. 130 miles. Uh, you know how fast you can, how long it takes you to walk 130 miles? A week. You're like, what? A week? What is he talking about? No, you can do it in a week. It's, it's not that hard. When you walk all your time, all the time, you can handle it. Um, but if you see, if you look at this, this topography, you can kind of see Jerusalem is way up in the north of Judah. All right, it's right on the border. The reason it was on the border is because those northern tribes of Israel, they've always been different. They were always unique. They were always a little bit out from everybody else. And so uh, David establishes Jerusalem, which is about five miles from his hometown of Bethlehem. Um, as a capital for both of these areas. But it splits under Rehoboam. And this northern group, um, now you can kind of see it from this point of view. Do you notice what happens to the land as you go north? All right. It actually starts to slope down. And right above, right above that line where I drew Israel is that Jezreel Valley. That Jezreel Valley... Um, that is the most fertile part of the land of Israel, the southern Levant. Um, it's the valley of Megiddo, which in the Bible is called Armageddon. 
That's where the final battle in Revelation takes place. Um, it's a wide valley, um, and it's a fertile valley, and it's a Canaanite valley. So the northern kingdom, all those northern tribes, they get all of their produce and all of their trade and all of their social connections and all their diplomacy and all that stuff. That's all going north. They're all connected to the Canaanites. And then the Syrians and then eventually the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they're connected that way. Judah is down next to the Dead Sea all by their little lonesome. Judah is so insignificant in the ancient world that the first appearance of a king of Judah comes decades after the first mentions of Israel, if not centuries. It's a little place. Nobody cares about it. It's essentially the Levant's Arkansas. Everybody knows Arkansas exists, right? Name one town in Arkansas that's not Little Rock, which is the capital, or the town where Walmart is based. I can't even remember what the name of it is now. Nobody knows anything about Arkansas. We vaguely remember that Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas before he was president. But other than that, Arkansas is just one of those one of those places. That's what Judah was. Because when this split happens, Israel is the wealthiest of the two. It's the most connected of the two. Um, it sends diplomats further away of the two. It pays taxes. Uh, King Ahab, who is one of the northern kings, actually raises a huge ca- uh, chariot force that serves the Assyrian Empire, and it actually appears on monuments and things like that. The northern kingdom is connected to world affairs. It is significant. It matters. So clearly, it's the better kingdom, right? As weird as it sounds... God breaks the northern kingdom off because of who their true allegiance is and plunges Judah into insignificance on the global stage to honor his covenant. So that when they face the challenges that they will face of idolatry and and false kings and all kinds of things, they don't have to worry about all these entangling alliances. Rehoboam in his, and I'm going to put it gently, mismanagement of the situation facilitates the process of history that preserves the line of David that ultimately brings along Jesus. He preserves the covenant in his folly. Solomon, in his mistakes, set up the situation that clearly delineates between the faithful and the unfaithful. This is not the sermon, but isn't it good to know that God can even use us when we are stupid? When we do dumb things, when we break the rules, when we blow it, and yet God is at work on something bigger. There are consequences to Rehoboam's actions. The kingdom is split. Like I said, Judah descends into um, basically insignificance in the world for for about two centuries before they finally reemerge. But at the same time, the people that were going to worship um, all the gods of the Canaanites and all those things, they now have a place to go. And so they head north. And that kingdom flourishes because in the south, uh, actually Rehoboam's son Asa, 
um, will essentially reassert the, the worship of the Lord God and, and, is, and that kingdom of Judah will continue faithful but obscure. Now, I have not in any way, shape, or form done justice to the theological complexities that this passage creates. How does God use this? Where is this? Why is this working? How is he involved? Is sovereignty and kingdom and free will and all that stuff? I wish there was a simple cause and effect, a a simple theological perspective that explains it all, but there's not. But I will tell you this. There's a reason the faithful are off stage while the world advances. So many people in our world are out for celebrity and success and personal glory. And I've mentioned this before, but when we look around at at the, the Christian industry and you see what's popular and what's exciting and what's new and and who has the newest website and the best domain and the best curriculum and the best this and who's pushing and who's building and who's all those things i i don't wish ill will to those people and i can't pass judgment on them but i can tell you that in my life i have this feeling God knows that if I were some kind of wildly popular preacher with my name on buses and websites, my ego would be so out of control that I wouldn't know what end was up. See, God shelters Judah with obscurity to keep Judah in a position where they can continue to choose to honor him. Do you know how many good kings, the Bible assesses every king, says he's good, he's, he's evil. Do you know how many good kings rule the kingdom of Israel? Zero. There are zero kings in the, king, in the northern kingdom that God says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Even Yahu, who actually winds up doing all kinds of great things, at the end he falls into evil. But in Judah, although they're not perfect, there are kings who come along in that line of David who are constantly saying, we are about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. We need to purge the sin and we need to purge the idolatry from our kingdom. We are the people of this God. We are the people of this covenant. Meanwhile, the big player, the popular kingdom, the kingdom that Jerry starts, is a disaster. The longest dynasty in the northern kingdom lasts three generations. 
every single, every century or so, there is a bloody coup to establish a new king. Violence, confusion, chaos, uh, prophets going and speaking and being killed and condemned. It is far better to be off stage and have the opportunity to honor God than it is to be center stage and seek to honor ourselves. That's the big idea. That's the big thought today. Sometimes God separates us from what appears to be successful And we ask why. We ask, why can't I have all the success that I want? Why why can't my husband be less annoying? My wife asked that question this morning. I'm not making that up. Um, why, why 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 can't my job pay what what it actually I I'm shopping for a car. Sweet Lord, what is going on with cars? And somebody keeps telling me, just wait till it goes down. Just wait till the market crashes. I'm like, you ever tried to walk back and forth in the snow? Um, And we'll make do. It's not a big deal. But I'm like shopping around. I'm like, man, this is out of control. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, I'm not saying, look, if you're holding back a million dollar check, now's the time to drop it, okay? I'm just letting you know. But, but, uh, you know, you sit there and you go, we want, we want this and, and we need it now and we want success and we want to grow. And the temptation of being center stage, of viewing ourselves as the world is about us, is that we're going to be drawn off by the powers of the world. Sometimes obscurity and silence and being cut off, it's a good thing. Sometimes, and to make a practical day-to-day application, sometimes you need to be cut off from everything that's going on to recenter on God. You say, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and pray to God. I, 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 got, I got all this stuff going on. Um, or, I mean, half of our congregation gets up early. Um, you know, some of us, most of us not because we want to, just because that's what our body does now. Um, and, and then the other half of us, you know, there's, there's some of us that don't believe the day starts until lunchtime. Um, there, there's, you know, we're, but we're like, I don't have the time for that. You know, I can't, I can't devote that time. I, I, I have so much to do. And listen, I feel you. I got so many different things going on. I'm like the whole day I'm juggling, trying to figure out. And what I find out is when I'm living my life like that, when there's no cut off, when there's no isolation, when there's no moment where I'm completely drawn away, it all becomes about me. It all becomes about me and my kingdom and my connections. And sometimes being off stage is good. I, I, I want to end with an invitation for you. On the back of the bulletin, there's just a, a little blurb. (sighs) 
let me let me just let me throw this out to you. Those of us that get up on the stage on a regular basis, and I think everybody would agree, there can be a real struggle to make sure that not only is Jesus the focus of what we're doing, but Jesus is also the focus of what everybody is seeing. Being up here is not easy. Because it is so easy to fall into our own natural proclivities, our own desires, our own things. And But we tend to think of ministry as the big thing. Standing in front, sinking, teaching kids, you know, all those big ideas. Mowing the lawn. It's like a big, high-profile job here. Um, but there are many, many tasks in our congregation that go unseen. Uh, we have one lady who, whether you know it or not, every Sunday comes in and resets the crayons and the coloring books for our kids. She just comes in and she does it. She doesn't ask for praise. She doesn't look for glory. She just does it. And you sit there and go, well, that's such a small thing. Well, it matters to parents. How many of you, ever, how many of you parents have ever had one of your kids open a box of crayons and find out there are eight black ones? The kid just loses her mind. How can I color with it? Now Ariel would go, I'm going to crosshatch a monochrome. She, even as a kid, she was an artist. But, but a lot of kids, we need red, we need yellow, we need blue, we need the mixture. That's a small thing that somebody does. Maybe the big role isn't for you. But I have a list of little, role, little jobs you can do that will matter so much. Praying for those who ask for prayer. How many times you've been sitting on a Sunday morning, you say to somebody, how are you? And they start talking to you about something and you go, okay. Take the opportunity to pray. Hey, listen, I'm going to throw this one out to you. And I know that there are a lot of people that would appreciate this. If you don't know, I'm terrible about updating calendars. Somebody willing to keep the calendar on the website up to date. Holding umbrellas for people getting to the door when it rains. How many of you have ever thought about that? if you weren't the person trying to get to the door when it rains. Uh, Fixing the envelopes, pens and Bibles, being ready to help set up extra chairs if people come in, taking a meal to someone who's at home home sick, not not home sick, but at home sick, um, or in crisis. And there's so many other little jobs. And and you know what the reality is? We human beings, we we tend to think of the world as a movie about ourselves, and we we tend to only think about the things that are right up front, that are visible, that are connected. Wow, that's a successful ministry. Look at how many hits their website gets, how many TikTok reels. I don't even, I have no concept how TikTok works. Um, things that they push out and everybody watches it. And, you know, oh, look at this multi-selling, multi-million dollar book. I, I by the way, have a policy that if a book is a bestseller, I just won't buy it. Um, it's better for everyone around me. My wife is like, stop buying books that are popular because you just hear me from my office going, why? Um, all of these little things that we can do. And, and maybe we need to be off stage a little bit. And, and you say this is a weird connection. The fact of the matter is, the most important things happen off stage. How many people knew who Jesus was when he was crucified? 
And you say, well, thousands, right? He fed the 5,000, blah, blah, blah. Did those people really know who he was? How, how, much, how much news media notice was there when David killed Goliath in the wide world? The most significant things happen in the lives of everyday people. Let me, let me end with this one question for you. Who ended, uh, who abolished slavery in the United States? Who abolished slavery in the United States? Go ahead. Say again. The legislature. I really thought somebody was going to say Abraham Lincoln. They're all afraid to say it because it's wrong. Because it's wrong. The voters of the state of Georgia, they were the 27th state to ratify the 13th Amendment. A state, by the way, that which side was it on in the, in the Civil War? It's on the South. The 27th state, which made the majority, which allowed Secretary of State Seward to declare the 13th Amendment a part of the Constitution. It was not Abraham Lincoln. It was not Ulysses S. Grant. Here's a little piece, by the way. You know when the state of Mississippi ratified the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery? 1995. Yeah, buddy. Um, It was the people in obscurity who voted and told their legislature to accept that amendment that ended slavery. It was not the Civil War. It was not Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, it was all tied in. It was individual people, insignificant people in the world's view. Insignificant people. The insignificant, the obscure, it matters. The ministry you do that you never get praise for, you sit around and go, hey, a little thank you and hey boy would be useful. That ministry matters. It changes the world a little bit at a time. So don't be afraid of being obscure. God may be keeping you pure by keeping you obscure. Uh, God may be preparing you for something greater by keeping you in the shadows. It doesn't mean you don't matter. You always do. Would you join me in a word of prayer? It's a weird correlation, God, to look at a kingdom and a theological, a, a diplomatic situation, a political situation, and look at our lives and kind of cross that line. And yet, we know that you've positioned us in the place that we need to be, to be the agents of grace in whatever aspect you've given us. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to do it exactly right all the time. But you've given us this space, this time, and this space and this time is just as sacred as any global moment. Help us to embrace the place you've put us in. For me, for all of us, to serve you And whatever task you've given us, and whatever space you've given us, whatever role it is, 
because 